I wonder if you've ever been like Samuel in verse 1 in this story. He's put a huge amount of effort into something, more precisely into someone, and they've let him down terribly. The man that he had anointed and picked out to be the king and ruler over Israel, the man that he had mentored and nurtured and cherished and advised and helped and stood by in battle, has become as if dead to him. He's mourning for him. And just when Samuel might be tempted to be most self-indulgent and just sulk and go off into the wilderness like Elijah does in years to come, the Lord taps him on the shoulder and says, excuse me, there's people still alive around here. Could you please stop being so self-indulgently mournful? How long are you going to whine over this person that I've already rejected? On your bike, I've got a job for you to do. And the job that he's got for him to do is to go and anoint a new king. Now, there's a serious occupational hazard in anointing a new king when the existing king still has his crown on his head and his sword by his side and his army under his control. It's not a very wise thing to rock up. It's a bit like, I don't know, Boris Johnson rocking up in Parliament and saying, I'm going to be the next Prime Minister. It sort of puts you up there to be shot at, doesn't it? As Boris is being shot at all the time. It's not so wise. And Samuel's aware that in a tyrannical, despotic regime, putting your head above that parapet is likely to leave him dead. Verse 2, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me, he says. So God gives him this master plan. It's quite amusing if you think about it, verses 3 and 4. God says, all you've got to do is put on a fake feast. (laughs) Go and put on a feast. Have a festival. Invite everyone to it. And one of the people who comes along will be one of the people that you need to anoint as king for me. So he's going sort of secret agent style, bit of a James Bond meets MasterChef moment into the wilderness. So go and sacrifice some animal, prepare it well, and have a feast with the local people. And off he goes. And as you may know in the story, he meets this man called Jesse, and he knows that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the future king. And Jesse's got a hierarchy of sons. He's got an eldest son who looks the part, looks like Saul, actually. Wonderful, strong figure, good-looking, all the rest of it. The whole package of what you might want in your next political leader. But God rejects him and rejects a string of other sons in the lineage. Uh, and then Samuel has to turn to, to Father Jesse and say, haven't you got any more of these sons? Because I'm pretty sure God's told me one of these guys is going to be king, and you keep showing me them, and I, I admit there's a lot of them so far, but none of them seem to fit the bill of what God wants to do. And Jesse sort of says a bit like an afterthought, well, there's the smelly one who's out with the sheep all day long, the little one, the youngest one, The one who's always singing, so we send him off into the fields because it's a bit annoying that he keeps whinging and whining along in song. And Jesse says, well, you know, I can get him back. Samuel says, bring him back. We're not going to start the feast till he comes. And in comes this sort of teenage um, Justin Bieber type, ruddy, fine appearance, handsome features. And uh, God says, he'll do. Anoint him. Because I I look on the heart, not on the outward appearance. Here's a ready-made king, strong and able, but he's not the one. Here's the teenage boy, boy band material, singing in the fields all the time. Smells of sheep, 
anoint him. And when the anointing of the Spirit comes onto this teenager, power comes on him. And he's changed from there on. Actually, as the story pans out, he goes and uses his music for the king Saul. It's a very amusing story. In the rest of the chapter, Saul's um, plagued by a sort of mental condition. And uh, David goes and plays his music to him, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who's anointed him. And every time David plays his music to the sitting king, the king gets better. And you've got a future king ministering to the present king in the power of the Spirit. As one gets more and more tormented, so the other one rises and rises. And you'll know the next chapter is, of course, the most famous story of David's life when he goes to the battlefield, finds that Saul and all his older brothers can't cope with the fact that there's a big, nasty enemy out there. And as a teenage boy, goes and defeats the Goliath, the giants, and then comes back into the town with people singing that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So rapidly he moves to extraordinary military leader, ends up marrying Saul's daughter, who later betrays him, and becomes best friends with Saul's son. Over a period of uh, more than a decade, he waits to become king. He goes into hiding. He becomes a Robin Hood-type bandit refugee. And eventually, he becomes king. So what do we learn from this? Well, Firstly, you might decide that anointing sucks. (laughs) It hasn't done Samuel much good, has it? He's got anointed as a a little boy who grew up in a temple. The Spirit of God came on him. The first thing he had to do was say to the only father figure that he ever had, you need to repent because God's about to judge you. Then Samuel, with his uh, anointing, anoints King Saul, who lets him down consistently all the way. Then he goes along here, And he gets to anoint David, but he'll never see David in all of his ministry. The only other time we see Samuel appear in the Bible is when he's summoned back from the dead in a sort of seance-type experience by by bad King Saul. So what did Samuel get out of it? It's a good question. And here's David, happily tending the sheep, a nobody from a minor clan, uh, singing his songs to God, enjoying being... Uh, the latest boy band worship leader. And suddenly he's singled out in a feast in front of everyone around him and said, here's an anointing on you. Can't imagine his brothers were particularly happy at that. They probably got pretty annoyed, as did everyone else around him. And so when he turns up to fight against Goliath, you can hear their barbed comments that they make about him in chapter 17, verse 28, His eldest brother hears him speaking with the men and he burns with anger at David and says, why have you come here? Why did you leave those few sheep in the desert? We know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You only came down here to watch the battle. (laughs) The anointing of God has brought nothing but trouble to Samuel and nothing much but trouble to David for the next two decades of his life. And yet here we are at Christchurch saying to people, well, I really think you should get filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) What are are we talking about? And are we being fair on an unsuspecting population when we say, why not get more of God in your lives? Shouldn't having more of God in your lives produce just a nice steady stream of blessings and prosperity and things being organized and sorted for you? After all, that's what God's there for, isn't it? 
God's there to answer my prayers when I'm in need. God's there to pick me up and uh, to pick me up especially when I die. I can be with him forever and sit on a cloud with an angel and play the harp and be merry. That's essentially God's purpose in the universe, isn't it? Or is it? The picture that emerges more in the Bible is of a world that's under extraordinary stress and strain. A world where there is extraordinary good that can happen, but again and again, an overburdening amount of evil, overwhelming like an avalanche, the people around him. So Saul gets his head above that parapet, and as he gets more anointing and opportunity, he finds that his character can't cope with the level of responsibility he's got. And he gets sucked down by evil. David's big brothers seem quite nice to start with, but once David's been brought up, jealousy rises up in their hearts and they're sucked down more and more by evil. The Israelites are at war with nations around them who want to destroy them all the time. Both from within our hearts and from without, there is warfare going on in the Bible worldview. Life, as Scott Peck said in his book, uh, Road Less Travelled, is difficult. And those who realize it's difficult are beginning to be on a road to some sort of recovery. Life is difficult. And sometimes getting more of God in your life actually makes life a hell of a lot more difficult in the short term. Because suddenly, where all the evil was just happily over here, and you were just sort of coasting along and and being all right with it, suddenly you've gained a whole load of vision and worldview and values that stand opposed to the dominant culture around you. Things like love and integrity and truth start to matter. Your conscience gets pricked in ways that you never thought it could have been about all sorts of things, from finances, through relationships, through forgiveness, through relating to people you didn't really like. (laughs) And the battle accentuates. The anointing of the God makes people stand out more against evil, less comfortable, less of an easy fit into surrounding society. But let's think what might be on the positive side of the anointing. Is it worth it? What happens when someone is caught by the Spirit of God? Well, Jesus said, the Spirit of God is upon me Because he's anointed me to preach good news, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to proclaim the year of God's favor and the release for the oppressed and recovery of sight for blind people. When the anointing of God comes on people, people get set free from the darkness. Darkness might not like it, it might rear its ugly head against it, but people start getting set free all around you. Just here in the meeting place, again and again, we're seeing people getting free in church, week in, week out. People come in burdened with all sorts of things. They encounter the anointing of God's Holy Spirit, and they realize that actually, I can be forgiven. They come and ask for prayer for something, and they see a miraculous prayer answer. 
I'm not sure I overheard it rightly, but I'm pretty sure I overheard Adrian telling a great prayer answer earlier. Do turn and look to Adrian at the end of the service because she is experiencing some of this anointing bringing change into the world. Because while you could stay passively in the mess and the rubbish and go, oh, it's better if I just keep my head down and just live with the crap in the world, actually the anointing sets you free. And it starts to set people free around you. It breaks the heavy yoke that binds people all the time. The anointing of God coming on people brings radical change into the world. Jesus gave us a simple prayer to pray. We prayed it at the beginning of this service. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, may the anointing of God's spirit come and break in. So that what is true in heaven is true right now in Chiswick or wherever you happen to be listening to this talk today. It breaks in. It brings change. It brings transformation. We do not have to stay stuck in the rubbish that we are currently stuck in. We can be free from sin, from sickness, and from the world, and from the devil. That's what the Spirit of God does. That's what the Spirit of God brings. Is it a hard burden to bear? It seemed a pretty tough burden for Samuel in our passage. It seemed a pretty tough burden for David. But thankfully, we get a real insight into David's life through those 10, 20 years of what looks outwardly like just true misery. We get an insight because he left his songbook behind for us to read in the Psalms. And the Psalms talk about him finding rest in God alone and salvation coming from him. Even when he's being oppressed by people on all sides, it talks about hope coming through. Sometimes he shouts and riles against God and says, why is it like this? It shouldn't be like this. Evildoers are all around me. Yet time and time again, he says things like the Lord redeems his servants and no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. He has the lovely picture of God being his own shepherd. And not being in want. A shepherd who makes him lie down in green pastures. Who restores his very soul. He says that even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. You're rocking your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David lived through utter agony. His wife left him, deserted him, quitted on him, betrayed him. He lost his best friend. He had his best friend's son turn on him. He had his sons turn on him. He had all sorts of things happen to him that were horrific. But my cup overflows and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, he said. That's David. That's Old Testament stuff. It looked like he's got a heavy burden, but he's still able to praise God. In the Christian era, in the New Testament era, Jesus says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. However hard it looks, if you're carrying it with me, it is light and it's easy. Whatever they throw at you, they've already thrown it at me, he says. Blessed are you when they persecute you. When they falsely say all kinds of things against you, blessed you because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you and they persecuted me. Is God the God who's just there to make our life just nice? 
No, he's not. Is God there with an absolute massive agenda to redeem us from the rubbishy mess and murkiness and bring us into truth and light and hope and joy and peace and life everlasting? Absolutely. Is the journey straightforward? No, it's not. It's cross-shaped. It involves dying to yourself and following Jesus. Is it worthwhile? A thousand yeses and amen. It's worth every step of the blessed journey. If you're here today feeling discouraged or despondent, feeling like life's ganged up on you in ways that you can't bear, the scripture says, take courage. No circumstance has seized you except what is common to other people. And God is faithful. He will give you a way to stand up underneath that circumstances so you can prevail over it. If you're here today, maybe God has brought you to this place to start to install in you the hope of life everlasting that flows and comes from knowing God himself.